So we've gone through a pretty significant amount of the halachot. I'm going to back it up here for a second. You see the table of contents here? Yep. So we did orders of prayer during the 10 days of repentance. We did foods customarily eaten on Rosh Hashanah. We did order of the Torah reading. We did the series of shofar blasts during which one may sit. And now we're up to our fifth chapter, laws relating to the shofar itself. It's interesting. I think the Rambam, the way he lays it out, he starts off with the shofar itself. That's the first thing he starts with. Interesting how the, the orders that the various codifiers used. So let's go and dive right into laws of the shofar. We did already how to sound the shofar, but now we'll get to the shofar itself. So these are the laws of the shofar of Rosh Hashanah, and it has 27 sections. First thing he says is that the shofar of Rosh Hashanah, it's a mitzvah that it should be curved. Not just a straight horn, but something that curves, as is the traditional shofar. Now we're going to see later, the Alter Rebbe says that that is not critical. If you don't have a curved shofar, you could still do the mitzvah. So as they put in the brackets over here, Rabbi Tauger, who translated this so wonderfully, in the brackets, for optimal fulfillment of the mitzvah. Kedei, and why why does it have to be kafuf? In order that our hearts will will be bent in submission to God in prayer. Where does this thing come from? Where does this idea come from? That has to be kafuf. From Rabbi Levi in the Gemara, tractate Rosh Hashanah, cited in the Torah and the Shulchanah. And the reason is cited in the Jerusalem Talmud, Shalmi Rosh Hashanah. All curved shofars are kosher, except for that of the, the para, the cow, and of the ox. Why? Because it is not called a shofar, but a keren. In other words, the, the horns that come out of a cow or of an ox, those are not called shofar, they are called keren. That the horns of an, of an ox are called keren. Most of the of the beasts of the wild animals, the undomesticated animals, their horns are different than that of the ram, which is what we use. Because they're just one bone, one thick bone, as opposed to the shofar, which has a which is a which has a cart cartilage. And the way you make the shofar is you remove the cartilage and you're left with this. Or you drill through the cartilage, actually, and then you have this. Uh, you have the shofar. Shofar. They're not called shofar. So, what does the word shofar actually mean? It doesn't mean a horn because karen is a horn. So, what does shofar mean? Shofar means karnaim hachalulim, 
These are horns that are hollow. Sheyeshlem zachros bifnim that have they have a um, cartilage inside. Viniklav gidon min hazachros. such as sheep and rams and goats, those are all kosher shofars. Shifoiferes means a tube. It's like a tube. but the horns of most wild beasts. Same etzem they're one thick bone. And they are not kosher, even after the fact. Meaning, even if you're stranded on an island and all you have is this horn and you drill the hole through it. It's not going to be kosher. Commercial part of a show. Any question or comment? Okay. Mitzvah min It is best. And here he says it clearly. It's it's the optimal way, the choicest way. Even though you have all these kosher shofars, as he as he listed before, the goats. And the and the sheep, but it's best to use that of a ram, to remind us of the binding of Isaac, as we already learned earlier in the Alter Rebbe Shochanar, when we learned about when you're supposed to do the bris, you're supposed to do the bris, um, which is the covenant of Abraham, right before doing the shofar, so you get that that convergence of, of holy explosions. So. Why do, why is why does the um, the ram remind us of the binding of Isaac? Because after Isaac was it was clear that he wasn't going to be actually slaughtered on the on the altar. What happened was is that God provided a ram that was caught in the thicket, and so when we blow the shofar, the ram's horn, we are reminded and we're reminding God, so to speak, of the binding of Isaac and all the merit that comes with that. But if you don't have a ram's horn, yitzibeshaminim. You can fulfill your obligation with the other kinds, as mentioned above. And where do we get this idea that it should be a ram's horn that also comes from the Gemara, that comes from Rabbi Avahu in Tractate Rosh Hashanah? Okay, now he goes back to what we started, that he said it's a mitzvah to have a curved shofar, not a flat one, but he says, if you don't have a curved shofar, you can fulfill your obligation with a flat one. When they said that it should be curved, that meant that's the ideal, optimal way to do it. If you, if you don't have any choice, or if it was already done, if you did it with a flat one, you fulfilled your obligation. And so if you don't have a curved shofar, it's as if you already did it with a flat one, and you're good to go. Good. Weiter. All right, jump. Yep. I noticed I was just catching up yesterday. You can you can fulfill your obligation by hearing a stolen. Wait, 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 you're ahead of us. You're, oh. Where are we? Are on uh, five eighty six, number three. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. I am ahead of you. Okay. Okay. Sorry. No problem. Spoiler. Spoiler. Okay. No problem, no problem. Number three, let's say you have a shofar from a non-kosher animal. 
Yesh Leposloi should be considered invalid. Even after the fact. Let's say you say, oh wait, that was the wrong shofar. It was from an kosher animal. You got to blow the shofar again. Or if it's the only shofar you have, it's it's not worth using. It's not going to be a mitzvah. Because only kosher species of animals are fit to be used for our work up for heaven. is is our, our, our work that we're doing for God. Where is this from? From the Ran. It's not the, the Talmud doesn't actually mention this explicitly, but the Ran and the Rama cite it that it's a it is a um, that one should not use it. And, and the Ran is who? The Ran Rabbeinu Nisim. Yeah. So wait, it looks looks like it is. This is the one that Ron just mentioned. If somebody stole a shofar and he used it to blow the shofar, he fulfilled his obligation. Even if the owners from whom they were, the shofar was stolen did not give up hope on retrieving the shofar. So you can't say, well, it became like his because the owner gave up hope. So it's just his. No, it's not yours. It remains the property in the ownership of from the people from whom it was stolen. And still you fulfill the obligation. How is it possible? It's not similar to a lulav that you stole, in which case you would not fulfill your obligation. Umatza, or if you stole a matzah, <laughs> or if it's tzitzis, you walk into Safeway and you walk off with a, with a case of matzah. Vitzitzis or stolen tzitzis, hagizulim. Now, if you, you probably read it already, but if you haven't read it yet, try to think what the difference might be. The one thing, Rabbi Yosef, is that if you stole, let's say, type of muscle from Safeway, but if you stole the uh, shofar, you would deprive the guy from the performing the mitzvah. You know, that's not very good, probably. Right. It's not. He didn't say it's good. He just said he fulfilled the obligation. (laughs) So let's see what he says. Let's see what he says. Right. Let's see what he says. What's the difference? The mitzvah of shofar, as we learned last time, is to hear it. That's it. So there's no stealing of a sound. You can't steal a sound. The fact that he's hearing it is not coming from the is not is not touching the shofar in his hearing of it. Even though he is a thief. Not saying he's not a thief. He's he committed the prohibition. Again, they transgress the prohibition on against stealing, but Kivin should be But the hearing of the shofar, there's no theft involved in that exact uh, experience. Therefore, he did fulfill his obligation. Whereas, if you stole the lulav, what is the mitzvah of lulav? The mitzvah of lulav is to hold the lulav, to shake the lulav. That is an act of theft. You're holding. You're holding on to this thing that doesn't belong to you. Or matzah, you're eating something 
that didn't belong to you. The mitzvah is to eat it, not to hear the crunch. Mitzitzes, <laughs> and the same thing, is the mitzvah is to wear it. So therefore, the Torah says you can't do a mitzvah with something that is an act of theft. But the shofar, even though you stole it and you committed a sin, but since the mitzvah is not related to the theft per se, it is related um, you know, indirectly, but it's not directly related to, to the sin itself. Therefore, it is kosher. Brother Marcus? Yeah. Okay, so let, let me see if I've got the picture here. Okay, so it says if one stole a shofar and sounded it, right? So he's fulfilling the obligation for himself. Yeah. Right? Well, he's got to be touching the shofar to be blowing. True. So how is it that he's touching it and not touching it? Because the the hearing of it, the hearing of it, it's not the mitzvah to blow the shofar, it's a mitzvah to hear the shofar. That's why we, we as we learned last time, the blessing that we say before hearing the shofar is, God commanded us not to blow the shofar, but to hear the shofar. The shmoya kol shofar. Okay, so he's he's still he's still touching it, but yeah. not touching it. No, he is touching it, but the it's not the touching of it that's the mitzvah. It's the hearing. Oh. Okay. Right? If it was a, you're right. If it was the mitzvah to blow the shofar, then you're right. You can't blow the shofar without touching it. Why would somebody steal it in this case if you go to somebody says, Can I listen to your shofar and hear it? What's the point of stealing this? It's a good question. I don't know. What do you think? Could be he's a kleptomaniac. Could be a kleptomaniac. You can begin to wonder if you received a beautiful shofar as a gift today, said you can blow it anywhere in the world, but Miami. <laughs> um, I think that maybe, maybe the guy didn't have a shofar. Maybe he's in a fight with the guy who has the shofar. You know that there was, you know, the two Jews on the island with the three shuls. So he he didn't have a chauffeur. He goes in, he steals the chauffeur from the other guy, quickly blows the chauffeur. The guy comes running after him. It's too late. He already did the mitzvah. He's not going to ask him for it because he, he, they're, they're enemies. A lot of interesting people in the world. Even Jews are interesting. I once stole a Torah. Because we needed to read the Torah. I was a thief. I hope this is not going online on the podcast. But uh, what happened was I, I didn't actually steal it. I was I was kind of uh, not told that I wasn't supposed to be taking this, this Torah. Anyway, this was back in Russia, in Kiev, in a place that was unfortunately in the news lately, in, in, in Bucha, which is which about half an hour from Kiev. We had a camp over there for the for the uh, Jewish kids from Ukraine. And um, Shabbos came, and I was told by the head director, the head counselor, I don't remember who, the director, to get in a taxi, go to Kiev. The shul is at this and this address. They're going to take you there. You go in, take the Torah, you come back. Don't talk to anybody. Don't look at anybody. Just take the Torah and come back. I didn't know any better. I went, I got the Torah, and I came back. I didn't talk to anybody and ask any questions. I didn't speak Russian, so well, I couldn't talk to anybody. 
So it turns out, though, that that shul had a rabbi, uh, also a Chabadnik, <laughs> and he was fuming what happened to my Torah. <laughs> so there was some kind of confusion. I can't remember exactly what happened. But these things happen. People steal even Torahs, even great rabbis. Okay, it's a wonderful, wonderful question. And um, the Torah deals with all kinds of situations, even if they, they don't seem like something we might do. Somebody might do it, so we have to address it. Okay, hey, mutter little shefer shel chaveirei daite. I mean, I, I guess you could say that there is a larger point here in in one of the ideas that we often talk about in Hasidus, especially in Tanya, is that our, our, our bad deeds don't invalidate our good deeds. Right? It's sometimes we have the inclination to say that because I'm not perfect, so nothing I do is, has any worth. And the Alter Rebbe says that's a mistake. You know, the good deeds are good deeds, the bad deeds are bad deeds. Normally we say you can't do a bad deed by doing a negative deed. You can't steal to do a mitzvah. But here we have an example where, yeah, it's possible, where you can bifurcate. You can say on the one hand, this guy is a thief. He needs to be educated that it's not nice to steal. On the other hand, he's a guy who wanted to do a mitzvah. And he did, he did the mitzvah. So there's actually a deep a deep idea behind it. Okay, muter little shayfer shel chaveiroi shaloi Oh, this leads us to the question: Can you take someone else's shofar without his knowledge? Liskoya baitkiya shel mitzvah umevari chalov to do to do the mitzvah and to say the blessing over it. Not because of what we said before that even if you steal, it's going to be yours. I see that I missed a part. We'll get back to it. Because we can assume, there's a presumption that a person will be happy for someone else to do a mitzvah with his property with regard to something where there's no wear and tear from blowing the shofar. In that case, nobody's going to mind if you borrow the shofar. So nobody will mind if you borrow their sitter. What about their tefillin? Probably also okay. The talis. But something that you would borrow from another person where you, there would be wear and tear on it. Um, even if you're going to do a mitzvah with it, we don't have this presumption that the guy will be okay with it. Let me back up for a minute because I skipped a part of the previous halacha. So we said that the thief will fulfill his obligation. But there's a little qualifier slash caveat over here. Nevertheless, since ultimately this mitzvah came to him through theft, right? Going back to the thief, not the one who, who borrowed without not informing the owner. He should not recite the blessing. Because whenever you have a mitzvah that came through an avera, you do not say a blessing on it. As explained in chapter 11. So that's what... I don't remember when... when, Do you make a bracha before you blow the shofar at Rosh Hashanah? 
Do we make a bracha because the, the mitzvah is for us to hear it? I don't remember making a bracha. Only the only, only the Baal Tokea, which is the one who blows the shofar for everybody, he says the blessing and everyone recites Amen. And Do that... And he recites Shechianu. And when you hear the... No, no, only the Chazan recites Shechianu. And when you when the congregation recites Amen, they are counted as if they said the blessing as well. But as we learned last time, if the Baltokea has already heard the shofar and has already fulfilled his obligation, now he's blowing for somebody else. You know, you go to you go to Central Park to the Japanese Garden, you meet a Jew, and you say, "Did you hear the shofar?" They say, "No." So ideally, you're gonna have them say the blessing. If they can't, they don't want to, they're stubborn, then you can say the blessing for them and the Shekhiyanu. And that's another very deep idea is that as long as, as long as another Jew hasn't done the mitzvah, I haven't completely fulfilled the mitzvah. And that's why I could say the blessing. By the way, uh, th this is a little tangential, you know, but um, what if... And this is kind of based on a conversation I overheard between uh, two of your colleagues um, on, on a slightly different topic. But what if um, you walk up to a Jew and ask him if he's heard shofar and he says no, and you pull out your shofar and he sees that it's made of a ram's horn, and this is like in Berkeley, <laughs> and he says, I don't want to hear the shofar, you know, if it's made from an animal and he starts running away, but you blow it anyway. Has he fulfilled his, uh, his obligation? It's a great question. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think we might, we might get closer to the answer later on when Nalta Rebbe is talking about, you know, how Kavanaugh, if you're walking by and you heard it by accident, maybe we'll get to the answer. That's a great well, I question. Thought of, I, I thought of this now, but recalling the conversation, yeah. uh, you know, where uh, Rabbi um, Leeds was saying, you know, they didn't want to put <laughs> up the film because it was you know, made from an animal, right? Okay, okay. All right, very cool. Well, you reminded me of the uh, of it was a video went viral a couple of years ago. I think it was Rabbi Kunin's son. By Mandy Kunin, who's maybe now a Chabad Shliach in Indiana, where Sean's daughter is, could have been him. And he he, he saw a guy, asked him if he wanted to hear the chauffeur, and the guy was this was in New York, only a New York story. The guy was jogging or running, and he says, "I, I don't have time. I got to keep running." He says, "Don't no, no problem. I'll I'll run with you and blow the chauffeur for you." <laughs> I'm pretty sure there was a video of it that went viral. And then they later met the guy. It was a whole story. So yeah, definitely a good question. Let's see if we if we get to it. All right. So back to here, what the the distinction between four and five is is that if you steal it, you don't say a blessing. And but if you borrow it without permission, you could say a blessing because there it's not an act of theft. We're we're acting on the presumption that people are not going to mind that you took their object. They're not going to consider it a theft. In fact, they're going to be happy. The word here is noach lola adam. Uh, here he translated as willing, which is not as strong as noach. Noach means it gives you pleasure. Pleasure that somebody is doing a mitzvah with your property. Is it a premise that borrowing without asking is not the same as stealing? When I was a kid, and it, 
elementary school, they taught us borrowing without asking is the same as stealing. Jewish law says no. Jewish law says that when it is a mitzvah, when you're borrowing something to do a mitzvah, then we presume that it is not stealing. If you're just borrowing it to borrow, borrow somebody's car to go to Trader Joe's to buy yourself some pickles, it's hard to say that eating pickles is a mitzvah. Even though it's the pickles are. <laughs> even though it's a very Jewish act, it's not a mitzvah. So then, your what you learned in school is correct. Borrowing without permission is stealing. But if you borrowed somebody's chauffeur or you borrowed his sitter, then we presume that people are happy you took their object to do a mitzvah, and it's not theft. So it's a very special carve out for mitzvahs. If you borrow for a short time and then with intention to return and return it is you're still stealing or not? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because you're taking something from somebody, he doesn't want you to take it. So during the time that you took it, you were stealing. You took it basically you stole with the intention to return it. So it's still theft theft. Still stealing, okay. Right. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Says from the laws it is apparent that the shofar should not be removed from the building <laughs> in which it is kept. It should be returned to its original spot after use, and of course, should be handled with care. <laughs> Doesn't say sanitized. Yeah, the oh. Jewish thief has to follow the directions. Right. Good. Okay, Vav. What happens if you have a shofar shel shel Israel? So it's owned by a Jew who worships it as a false deity. Again, we're seeing, getting into a corner case over here, but we're also seeing again that the Torah deals with every kind of case, every kind of Jew. This is a Jew, unfortunately, sadly, tragically, is worshipping the shofar. We're going to deal with that case. It happens. The answer is, Lo yatza, you will not fulfill your obligation by using the shofar. So and he gives the example. How did how did he how did he turn this into an idol? He bowed down to the shofar. Mishum, why why is this? Mishum the shofar A shofar, even though the issue is hearing the shofar. So what's the difference? What kind of shofar? You still heard a sound. The answer is that a shofar, even though the thing is to hear the sound, it has to have a certain measure. It has to be a tefach. A tefach is a hand breath. A shofar that has been worshipped. What's the law about the shofar? It has to be burnt. Any object of uh, of idolatry has to be burnt. That's what it's, what's halacha. If there's an, an idol of a Jew. And you, you see he's specifically saying a Jew, not a not a non-Jew. Because there's the when it comes to the I, I, doubt, I idol of a non-Jew if the if the non-Jew nullifies it and says hey this is not an idol anymore they abandon it they they treat it they don't treat it as they would a, a something that they consider a deity so they are they have the capacity a non-Jew has the capacity to uh, take something that was an idol and make it not an idol anymore but a Jew an idol that's only the idol that was worshipped by a non-Jew only but an idol that's worshipped by a Jew cannot be nullified as an, as an idol, and it must be burnt, it must be destroyed, whether it's a shofar or any other idol, as explained in Yoridea. 
So now you ask, so what? But it hasn't been burnt yet. So now we have a shofar and it's a tefach long. So what's the problem? The answer is that we have a principle that something that is due to be destroyed, oimed literally is standing. It's, it's like that's what's going to happen to it. And it's supposed to happen to it. It's the halacha. We consider it halachically as if it's already been destroyed. And it's, if it has to be destroyed, and it is destroyed, well, then it's not a, it's not a handbreadth shofar. So you heard the sound from a faulty shofar. As we'll see, there are faulty shofars. One of the things that can make a shofar faulty is it doesn't have the complete measure of a handbreadth. But here you see another principle where we sometimes find in Torah that what's supposed to happen or what's going to happen, we already consider that as the reality. And here we have a word here that says chaser, which means part of the text is missing from the manuscript. So there was something here that the Alter Rebbe had written, but it got lost. Any question on that? Ah, okay, you can see from the next halacha that there was something missing. Here he starts talking about cracks in the shofar. I'm going to skip all that because it's very, um, very long. And so I'm going to skip it. But basically, if there are cracks in the shofar, you got to ask a rabbi what to do. Um, let's look at number 11. If you add it on to the shofar with some other material. And now, when you blow the shofar, the, the sound of the shofar is coming out by way of that addition, the addition. Whether you took ground up shofar and you, you glued it on, or whether it's some other material, silver, gold, whatever, whether you added it on the narrow side where you the mouthpiece or whether you added it on the wider side where the sound comes out pasul it's not kosher because the sound has to be coming from the shofar only not from anything else Rabbi, the, the way the Alter Rebbe is writing, it's almost like he lifted this out of the Gemara it seems very Talmudic they're coming up with these hypotheticals right remote and and i guess i haven't read enough of the codifications of shulchan Aruch. oh yeah do, do the codifications typically include some of these remote hypotheticals as as kind of and codify them absolutely it goes through you know any anything that the talmud discusses as a question it will it will show up in the shulchan Aruch as you know what the final the final um final ruling is 13 if it was if it was if it was a long shofar and you cut it down which most of our shofars are like that it doesn't have to be the whole horn uh, um, you know in its completion it, as long as it has that tefach the handbreadth it will be kosher now then he asks how big does a shofar have to be tefach a hand's breadth why so that the person blowing the shofar can hold it in his hand. The Hainu Bedala that's place of Bainim with his four fingers. And the shofar will be seen from both sides of his hand. 
Because if it doesn't stick out on both sides of his hand, then it just looks like he's blowing into his hand. It has to be clear that he's blowing from a shofar. Let's see, it's a very big hand. And you can't see the shofar. Nevertheless, it doesn't have to be bigger than a tefach, the handbreadth of a regular, normal, quote-unquote, person. If you made it very thin, you, 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 you filed it down so it was very thin, it's still kosher. Okay, number 16, this is very important, and this came up as an issue um, during COVID. Let's see what it says. Number 16. There cannot be any interposition, nothing intervening between the mouth of the shofar blower and the shofar itself. Hefsik. Hefsik is the interposition, the intervening. intervening. Therefore, if you are super hygienic and super scared, of germs and he said i'm not putting my mouth on that chauffeur last year was a different chauffeur blower it's only been a year so i'm gonna put the mask on it no that's not the example that the gives let's see the altar if he coated it with gold ah this is the trump chauffeur he coated it with gold in the place where the mouthpiece in order to beautify it. It's a mitzvah, a shoifer. I want to make it beautiful. I'll put some gold on it. You killed it. Because as if it's going to intervene between your lip and the shoifer, the gold that you thought was making it better is actually causing you not to have uh, the connection directly to the shofar. But if it was it was further up on the shofar, not part of the mouthpiece, then it is indeed kosher. But there's a caveat coming. Hold on. When do we say that, that if you have some gold uh, anywhere not in the mouthpiece, that it's still kosher? When this coating of gold or whatever it is does not impact and does not change the sound of the shofar. Or if you don't know whether it changed or not. Because probably it did not change it. If it was just a little, you know, light coating. But if you know for sure that the sound of the shofar is now different because of this addition, this embellishment. Even though the the change is only minimal. It's not kosher. Because again, you're not hearing the pure sound of the shofar. You're hearing the sound of the shofar and the sound of something else, which is the coding, the embellishment. I think there's a profound lesson here as well. That sometimes we think that we are improving and really less is more. Right? You don't we can't lose the pure sound of the shofar. That is what we're going for and avoid anything that would 
that would compromise that pure sound, even if it's making it nicer and it looks better and is more impressive. But we want, we can never lose that pure sound of the shofar. It's like you make lattes from Hanukkah from all kind of different nice things, you know, <laughs> instead of straight potatoes. Right. Like yes. <laughs> no zucchini, please. Rabbi, uh, yeah. Marcos told me he takes his hearing aids off to hear shofar and to hear Megillah. I love it. Because he says that's the halacha. Now, these, this was obviously written before they had the hearing aids that they have nowadays. So, right. Why is that? Well, interesting. We, we did talk about that in the last class. I'm glad you're bringing it up again and bringing a Maiserav, uh, meaning a, a great person that, in fact, does this because we talked about how it's you're, you cannot fulfill the obligation because you're not hearing the sound of the shofar. You're hearing a mechanical reproduction of the sound of the shofar. So you didn't hear the shofar if you're hearing it through a hearing gate or through a microphone. You need to hear the actual sound. It, get, it gets back to something we talked about many times, that the mitzvahs are real. The physicality of the mitzvah is real. It's not just a ritual, a, um, you know, to a ritual, a symbolism. You know, if it's just a ritual or symbolism, what's the difference? You heard the actual shofar or you heard, uh, you heard it through a mic. No, you have to hear the actual Shofar. You have to hear the actual sound of the shofar, otherwise you can't do the mitzvah. That's why we didn't have any Zoom Zoom services during COVID. We risked our lives to pray together. No, we didn't. We only did it when it was pure, perfectly safe. And uh, one of my favorite lines from the COVID era is the first time we got together to pray, we had special permission from the county. Not us personally, but you know, you, they said you're allowed to pray to come together to pray with certain conditions so i said that we must have kavana we must have you know must be paying attention to our prayers today because if not we're breaking the law because we're only allowed to be here to pray yeah. <laughs> by law we were required to pray with kavana <laughs> so no jfk no you can't just come for the kids then <laughs> So that's a great point, Jonathan. Yes, they, they, those who are, are careful to be doing the mitzvah properly will remove their hearing aids so that they can hear the actual sound of the shofar. And, and I've he also does that for Megillah, reading of the Megillah. Too. Right, the same thing for Megillah. Because, you, again, you need, to hear, you need to hear the sound of the person, the human sound, the human sound. This would go over well in Berkeley, that you need to hear the human sound, not a mechanical, you know, white man's production. Aval, okay. I'm inside in Beshefer Tzuris Those who decorate a shofar with drawings in order to beautify it, they're not acting in a desirable way. Because it could impact the sound of the shofar. Again, I emphasizing again that when we try to embellish on Judaism. There is a risk of actually distorting it and losing and losing what it really is. We do have a concept of beautifying the mitzvahs, right? So, but not to change the mitzvah. You can beautify the mitzvah without changing it. So, for example, if you want to beautify the mitzvah of shofar, you can get a nice big shofar. You can get a shofar that that looks, you know, it's a good, it's a good shape. You don't want to get a fakrochen, a small shofar. 
Although the small shofars are also have their own beauty. Um, if you're getting tefillin, you can get a bigger pair of tefillin. You can get a you know nice nicer scribe that 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 is a wonderful artist that writes a very beautiful script. You're not changing the mitzvah. You're taking the mitzvah itself and making it beautiful in in it by its own parameters. But if you start like decorating your tefillin with a pink flower or even a green flower, so now you're adding to the mitzvah. Veret by dirgebetin. Who asked you <laughs> to, to embellish? That God gave us beautiful mitzvahs. You don't have to add to it. Make them beautiful. Ah, interesting. So you're allowed to carve into the shoifer images in order to beautify it. But that's consistent because you're not you're leaving the you're not you're not adding something onto the shofar. You're taking the shofar itself and making it beautiful. Even if this impacts the sound, there's not a problem. The problem with, with uh, impacting the sound is not that it's a different sound than it was naturally, but that you no longer have the pure sound of the shofar when you add some gold onto it or other, other things. You have the sound of the shofar commingled with the sound of something else. Now you messed it up because we want the pure sound of the shofar. As we know, the sound of the shofar is the cry of the soul. It's so much depth and calls to the essence of our soul, the essence of God. You don't want to mess with that with any kind of embellishment. But if you're carving into the shofar and that impacts the, the, the sound, it sounds a little different, that's not a problem because you're still only hearing the sound of the shofar. You're not hearing any other element mixed in. You still have the pure sound of the shofar. It doesn't matter what sound comes out of the shofar. As long as that's the sound of this shofar and nothing else commingled, it's kosher. It's another beautiful idea, right? That every Jew, we all have the, our sound that we give forth in our mitzvahs. And some, you look at the greatest tzaddik, Moses, the sound, the light that comes from his mitzvah, wow, it's like, it's blinding. And it's amazing. And then, you know, you think of a Jew that... You, maybe we think of ourselves, I'm no Moses, but it's my mitzvah. My mitzvah sounds like a broken trumpet. No, as long as it's a pure sound from our soul without any embellishment, it's just our pure desire to do the will of God. Even if we're no Moses, maybe we're at the opposite end of the, of the hierarchy there. This is a kosher sound and pierces the heavens. feel like we should end there because it was a powerful idea and we're shtickle over time but it's so tempting to try to get to the end of the chapter but now as i scroll i see it's quite long so we'll leave it for next time and we'll open it up to questions and or comments you know what that song is? The song of Simchas Torah, Hakafis Nigan. The Rebbe's song of Hakafis. You know the song? That's the Rebbe's father's Hakafis song. You know, the dancing on Simchas Torah. The Rebbe's tune was 
Powerful, powerful song. So there's a famous story where where there was a, a Jew who came to call Nidre, but he was he was quite inebriated. And um, if I recall correctly, it was he had a good reason for it. He had a good reason for it. He was trying to to redeem a captive, you know, one of the poor Jews back in the shtetl who who owed the money to the potitz, to the to the nobleman, and he threw him in jail. But to get he needed to raise some money to get him out. And he went to the bar and the and the they said if you'll drink this cup, we'll give you a give you a thousand ruble. And he drank it, but he needed 5,000 rubles. He kept drinking. He challenged him, and he came completely drunk. He got the money. He got the Jew out of jail. And this was all happening on Erev Yom Kippur, the eve of Yom Kippur. He comes into the synagogue. Everybody's waiting for the chazan. And uh, he opens the ark, and he starts singing the song of Simchas Torah. He thinks we're ready by Simchas Torah. He smelled his breath and thought we were, oh, we must be on Simchas Torah. And it's a beautiful Hasidic story about you know the the uh, self sacrifice that he had and the purity of his intention and so forth and now he he actually was I think the comment of the of the Rebbe at the time I forgot where it was maybe Rebbe Levitzik that he said you know that this this man's Simchas Torah um, Simchas Torah feeling at that moment was more powerful than anything else. That he could have imagined for for a Kol Nidre, so so we're in that zone. We're getting closer to getting closer to the high holidays, to Rosh Hashanah, to Yom Kippur. We're going to end with Simchas Torah. That's the end. So it all leads to to great joy. All right, friends. Anybody have a comment, question? <clears throat> <clears throat> 